Welcome to the At the Castle Bible Teaching Podcast. Our goal is to dive deep into the Word of God and uncover its timeless truths and teachings. At the Castle, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God, and we seek to understand and apply it to our lives. During ATC Winter Weekend 2022 we were joined by Andrew Sack, who helped us to explore the Gospel of Mark. For more information about At the Castle, please check out our website, www.atthecastle.org.uk or find us via our social media. We hope that through this podcast, you'll grow in your knowledge and love of God's Word and be equipped to live out your faith more fully. Um, well, let us start. Uh, thank you for submitting your questions. Do have, uh, initially, when I looked, I thought there was only six questions. This is going to be a very short uh, Q&A session, uh, but there's actually quite a few. And uh, we'll make a start with a very difficult question, uh, maybe, maybe not. What is your dog called? <laughs> uh, he's called Gustav. Gustav, okay. Very good. Any, want to say any more on that? He's named after the concierge from the Grand Budapest Hotel film. Oh, there you go. Well, the, the same person has asked a, a supplementary question, <laughs> and it says, any book uh, or reading recommendation around temporary heaven, uh, new heaven, uh, new earth, as what you were saying. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> I don't actually know. Do you, can you think of one? I mean, it's just, I mean... It's a biblical idea that once you notice it, you'll see it everywhere. So it doesn't, in a sense, I don't think it, it sort of doesn't need a sort of book-length justification of it. It's just the hope in the Bible is of a new heaven and a new earth. And heaven is where we go temporarily. I guess any good book about eschatology or about the end of the world or... Um, but I'm trying to, if you say that, I'm trying to think. There's a book by Marcus Nodder, What Happens When We Die, that's very short, that's quite good in terms of what the Bible teaches about the future. So, yeah, but basically the biblical pattern is I die. If I die before Jesus comes back, I go to heaven to be with him temporarily without my body. So your soul goes to be with Jesus. But that isn't the final state because in the end you want a new body like Jesus has a new body and you have to wait for that until the resurrection day. And on the resurrection day we have new bodies and we live on the new earth. Yeah, so I'm just saying this thing in the Bible again. But that's what the Bible says. I don't know who describes it well in a book. Yeah, Marcus Nodders, What Happens When We Die is good. I can't think of off the top of my head of another one. No. It depends on your net. Maybe Greg Beale has written some good stuff on certainly Revelation and maybe touches on those things. Mm. And Richard Gaffin, maybe as well. It depends on maybe mm. a little bit more technical. Yeah, Richard Gaffin, Resurrection and Redemption is amazing, but very, very hard. <laughs> so you have to read it slowly with lots of cups of coffee. But it is very good. Yeah. Well, maybe you do know recommendations for this. I'll go on to the next question. Is there a study book for Mark's Gospel you'd recommend? Um, you do some shameless self-promotion here. <laughs> <laughs> or if you don't, I will. Dig deeper. Dig deeper in the Gospels. There's uh, some things Andrew himself has written, but... Dig de- I mean, dig deep into the Gospels is basically this weekend's talks plus more stuff. So it's got a really terrible title. It isn't actually about the Gospels. It's about the Gospel of Mark exclusively. And the publisher, the publisher wanted to call it that. And Anyway, so it is, it is just Mark. Um, 
I think comment. I mean, there's some books of the Bible that have got commentaries that I'm really excited about, and some that don't. And I think Mark. One of the problems with a lot of commentaries is they they give you this is what this paragraph means, but it's quite rare to find a commentary that says this is what's going on in this whole chapter, or this whole section. And I think that's what's actually really really useful. So the commentaries I'm most excited about that I don't know one on Mark's Gospel like that, but. Um, but there's like a, you know, there's a commentary on Genesis by Bruce Waltke where he sees the whole thing and how it fits together as an unfolding drama. It's therefore really, really useful. Or there's some work in the Old Testament books by Michael Morales. He's sort of done, he's done a book on Leviticus in the context of the whole Bible, which is really exciting. He's just done one on Exodus in the context of the whole Bible. So I think they, personally, I find those kind of books way more helpful than the commentary that explains verse 7 but doesn't give me the big picture. And I think one of the things we've seen this weekend is we want big picture. So I don't know of one on Mark, but um, increasingly people are starting to write commentaries like that that take account of the whole story rather than just each little separate bit. Okay. Uh, what are the main themes of the rest of Mark's Gospel? Um, what are the main passages presenting those themes? Oh, I mean, like, all of the passages that we haven't done are, are really important. <laughs> obviously and I just I mean I Ben said you've got five talks and I thought okay let's be ambitious and try to look at five quite big sections but you know I it was very difficult to choose like why did we not do chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 verse 6 where we see opposition to Jesus and what is behind it why did we do chapter 4 where we see how Jesus word filters people those who lean into him more and those who Jesus conceals things from because they, they won't listen. Um, why did we not look at chapter 7 about the evil coming from the heart? Why did we not look at the rest of chapter 9 and 10? Why did we not? I mean, you know, everything that we didn't cover is important. So this was not all of Mark. This was just five bits of Mark that I wanted to do on a weekend. But I would love to do the rest of it sometime. So, yeah. But the central themes of Mark, I mean, we see a bit of that just from the structure. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. So Mark's arranged the whole thing around this Jesus identity as the as the king. So that's obviously really, really key. Um, and then I think this the theme of to follow him means to give up stuff is actually all the way through the gospel. So we saw it at the beginning, the call of James and John, the call of Levi. And they left and they followed him. Then we saw it in chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. And then we see, as Jesus is about to die, Peter's denial is actually the failure to do exactly this. So Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. And it's the same verb when Peter denies Jesus and you think gosh this is a failure of discipleship at the most fundamental level because the the key to discipleship was to leave and follow Jesus and Peter doesn't do that and then then at the end wonderfully beautifully in Mark one of the distinctive things about the resurrection is it's the restoration of Peter so the angel in chapter 16 when he announces that Jesus is risen he says he's not here he's risen Go and tell the disciples and Peter, which is just a lovely thing, because of course Peter is one of the disciples, but he's singled out and tell him, you know, Jesus has basically died for you, 
risen for you. You failed him, but he's paid your ransom and you're his friend again. So that's a particular... But I mean, there's, I could, there's strands like this of you know, loads and loads of them. So please don't think... Sometimes we like... People say, what's the theme of a book of the Bible? And you kind of think, well, yes, it's a good idea to try and get a handle on it, but you don't want to reduce Mark's gospel to one thing. You know, it's many, many glorious things. But I guess those are pretty central. Okay. Uh, presumably... That is small. <laughs> it's like microfiche size. Uh, presumably, it's no coincidence that the middle section of Mark contains teaching on marriage. Is it lived in a death slash resurrection, suffering slash glory dynamic? Uh, that is, is marriage lived in, in these dynamics? Uh, what does this look like for couples uh, as serving members uh, of the church? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So marriage in Mark's gospel, this is like a, one of those quiz questions, isn't it? Where's marriage in, in the gospel of Mark? Um, John the Baptist loses his head because of teaching on it. Because he says to Herod, it's not right that you're living with your brother's wife. Which is like, obviously that isn't right. But because he calls him to repent of it, it's in, in the end what gets him killed. And then the Pharisees in chapter 10 asked Jesus about divorce. But it's clearly a trap. It's a trick question. And I guess it's because of what they've seen happen to John the Baptist. So the Pharisees know that King Herod um, is pretty sensitive about the topic of divorce and is ready to lock someone up if they say the wrong thing. So they go, Jesus, what's your view on divorce? So it's kind of there to tell you about divorce, but it's more there to see, can we trap Jesus and, you know, they can't. And they always, they keep failing to, to trap Jesus. And then similarly, the Sadducees, um, who don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. And um, they, they ask the question about the man who dies and then marries again and then um, and has seven wives. And then at the resurrection, who will he be married to? And Jesus goes, what a stupid question. You just don't understand the power of God. Um, and so they're kind of, it's not really there to give, I think it's not really there to give you a, the Bible's doctrine of marriage. It's more just Jesus calling us to obey God's way and to repent. And then that, that gets him into trouble. So if you want to know the Bible's doctrine of marriage, I would go probably elsewhere. I go to Genesis first. In fact, that's where Jesus goes in, in Mark's gospel. Um, and that's where you find out that marriage is between a man and a woman and it's lifelong um, and divorce is not an option. Apart from if somebody is terribly, in, you know, if there's terrible sin, it can break a marriage. But you're certainly not to break a marriage lightly. Um, divorce is there to protect the wronged party when they've been sinned against. It's not there to provide an opt-out of what's meant to be a lifelong thing. So that, those kind of things. But um, the question of what would it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus in marriage, I think it means fight sin. Um you know, being faithful to your spouse and to your community by battling sin. That's a big thing. Um, and, yeah, elsewhere in the Bible, it becomes clear that marriage is such so that we can serve God together. Christopher Ashe's book, Married for God, I think is really excellent. And I try to, whenever I marry somebody, as in, as the minister, I haven't married a lot of people. <laughs> uh, whenever I marry people, I, I recommend that book. And the whole, and the subtitle is, Sex in the service of God, 
Um, and you know, the, the God's plan for marriage isn't just that you'll be friends and there'll be companionship and sex to enjoy together, but that that will enable you then to serve the Lord Jesus. So that's probably a good place to go. Okay. And just to follow up, serving as members of the church, is there a dynamic that, you know, we were talking about calling us to service maybe individual Christians, what does that look like for a married couple in the, in the context of their local church? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when husband and wife are able to serve in partnership, that's much better than if you just have completely separate areas of service um, that you both are involved in. And obviously, you know, sometimes there can be just the way that opportunities come. You know, you can have different workplaces and you can be involved in, the woman might be involved in a mum's Bible study in the daytime or uh, etc. I mean, there might be different things that you do, but as far as you can to share the ministry you have is better than doing it independently. Um, because then you're in partnership together. So I think even if it's just that the husband is praying for the evangelistic opportunities of his wife at work and knows who all those women are that she's trying to get to know and vice versa, that's better than if you just have your own evangelistic thing. And then sometimes as a couple or use your home to advance your ministry. So, you know, one of them is involved in the the hospitality that you show you do together and I, I just think where there can be partnership it's um it's better so and that i suppose that means if you get married if you're single and you get married it means expect your ministry to adjust quite a lot as you try and have a ministry in partnership with your spouse you probably got more wisdom than i on because you're married ben what, what would you say about this so it can be hard with uh, especially when kids come along then as well but yes we try to use our home and invite people in from church, invite you know things, and obviously there are. As you, I think that's something you said there. There is has to be an adjustment mm. of what you do as a single person and what mm. you do as a married person. Maybe John touched on it last night, referring to a book which I haven't read. Is this it? And I just had a glance at it. It said the aspirations you have as a 16, 17 year old, you know, and then all of a sudden you're maybe 27 or 37, and you're thinking, oh what's happened here and I was particularly struck by we had six months ago Ecclesiastes David Gibson if you weren't here then you could go back and listen on the online on the podcast or the, 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 the you can listen back to them I was really just struck by that by you know this is where God has you placed now in the circumstances the environment the relationship now and that's different from maybe a previous you know arrangement so um, and, and you're called to be true to, to, to God and, and glorify God in the context you're, you're currently in rather than wishing you were a single person now when you actually are, are doing it as a couple. Hmm. So I'll, I'll go, your question on me. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll ask you a question. I'm not quite sure this question. It's very simple and short. It was short and simple. Who should Paul marry? I'm not sure if that's related to Apostle Paul or a question on, on Paul in the Bible, or is there a Paul here? Someone's <laughs> <laughs> asking on Paul's behalf who should Paul marry. That's a self question. I mean, maybe I don't quite understand the question, but uh, Paul is, you know, the apostles have the right to take a believing wife. It's a, so um, singleness is not a higher 
such a special religious thing that apostles or church leaders or priests should aspire to, as you know. So the whole idea of forbidding marriage for priests was a, a misstep by the Roman Catholic Church and we shouldn't see per-spiritualised singleness. Um, yeah, but singleness can be good, but it's not... Um, it's, it's normal for people to marry. It would have been normal for... Yeah, I don't know how to answer it other than that. And who should you marry? Someone who's a Christian. He's not a close relative. He's not, ma- <laughs> he, he's not married to somebody else. He, he's not married to somebody else. And that's as simple as that, isn't it? I, mean, I presume he's someone that you like, because if you've got a choice in it, but single, not a close relative, not married to somebody else. <laughs> Opposite sex. Yeah. Don't be too picky, is that what <laughs> Well, no, I mean, like... Yeah, you have an element of choice, don't we? I mean, it, you know, in our culture, I mean, some cultures you don't get to choose, but in our culture you do get to choose, so pick someone that you like. But in terms of what honours the Lord, those are the criteria. Yeah. I'm actually just on a comment. It normally gets me a bit of speakers um, when a question like this uh, comes up about why are there so many girls here and not enough guys. But actually, in the last, you know, I've noticed there's a bit of a better balance. Sometimes we've had, like, hundred girls and twenty guys here. So wow. it's been very you know, I'm sort of wondering where are all the Christian guys, you know, we want to hear the Bible taught and mm. whatever. But um it's been good actually to see a lot more guys coming uh, in recent uh, the recent couple of castles mm. we've had. I did meet my wife here um ten years ago this weekend actually. <laughs> so, uh, hey. uh, Glorious byproduct of, of listening to God's words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, three questions on this. So, I'll just they're all basically the same. Uh, how do you explain preach the abrupt ending of Mark chapter uh, sixteen? Uh, what's up with the extra bit of Mark? Where did it come from, and why is it considered separate? Um, how do you explain this, especially? Yeah, yeah. I opened a can of worms and I should close it now. Uh, well, let me say. So, how do we know it's not original? Is because it's not there in the earliest copies. So, the way that you know we don't have the copy of Mark's Gospel that Mark wrote. We don't have the original, the autograph, as it's sometimes called. But we do have copies of it because as soon as Mark wrote it, people realised this is a very useful document. This is like the life of Jesus based on the eyewitness account of Peter. We'd all like a copy, please. So as the church starts to grow and spread, people start to copy the apostolic documents so that they can all have a copy of them. So And they're copies and copies and copies and copies. Um, this actually should really encourage us because we need to understand that Chinese whispers, people say, oh, couldn't it have got changed? And especially if there's a manuscript debate like this you know this isn't in some of the manuscripts people worry oh is it all Chinese whispers and actually we shouldn't worry because the absolute opposite is the case so the way Chinese whispers works do you call it that in Northern Ireland yeah the Americans call it telephone for some reason but anyway Chinese whispers I suppose it's a slightly racist title isn't it but um, not that Chinese people can't communicate very well but um, (laughs) anyway if I were to whisper a message starting at that end of the room and then you whisper it and whisper it and whisper it. And the whole, the fun of the game for children is we whisper it very indistinctly and you can't really hear because of the background noise and so it gets hilariously changed. Now, that is very, very different to how ma- 
how biblical manuscripts were copied. Because instead of whispering it for a start, you read it out very clearly, as clearly as you possibly can. And then instead of, but this is the key thing, instead of it going along a line, one person to one person to one person to one person, it gets branched out. So you might have a whole room of scribes all copying as I read it out. So imagine that entire front row copies the first, um, the first line. Now, if one of you gets it wrong because you miss here, um, all of the other managers are going to get it right. And then you get copied by everyone in the second and third rows. And you also start to travel to different places. So let's say people over here go to Alexandria in Egypt and people over here cross into Ethiopia in North Africa. And, you know, the, the, the church is spreading and so are the manuscripts, branching, branching, branching out like a tree. Now, along comes the um, textual um, researcher in the 18th, 19th, 20th century. And instead of just having one copy, we can get copies from all over the place. Let's say my one's lost, the original's lost, and the front row's all lost. But we got one from over there in Alexandria from the second row. We got one over there from Ethiopia in the third view. We got one over there that got translated into Latin. And, it, and you've just got loads of, of copies. And then you compare them, and it's really obvious if somebody made a mistake. Because only, let's say, in the you know the Coleraine manuscripts is it slightly different because somebody oh it must be the whoever copied it for them got it made a mistake but we know that's a mistake because everyone else everywhere in the world has a different reading um, now the reason this is so good is it's not just that there aren't any mistakes because there are mistakes but the mistakes are obvious very detectable and um, very limited so it's not like, oh, who knows what the original text was? We, we know absolutely what the original text is, because if they all agree, that is the original text. And if there's a discrepancy that only begins on the fifth row back, we go, well, that was because a scribe in the fourth century was a bit slapdash. Um, so, and, and there's no conspiracy about it. So in a modern Bible, there's a footnote that tells you every time that there's a discrepancy. So I'll just open my Bible randomly at... Mark chapter 5, and it says, footnote 2, ignoring some manuscripts hearing. It's like, okay, so that's, I'm not so sure about that word. Was it ignoring or was it hearing? And someone's written it down differently. Or the place where Jesus exercises the man with the pigs, it's called the Gerasenes. But my footnote says, some manuscripts, Gergesenes, some manuscripts, Gadarenes. Okay, we don't know how you spell the place. To be honest, I don't really care about that. As in, it's a place beginning with G and scribes called it different things. That's okay. I'm not absolutely sure which one Mark wrote. But that's the sort of things you're not sure about. Like really small details. Now, there's only um, sort of three exceptions, which are bigger bits that we now know aren't original. One is the end of Mark. One is the bit in John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery and the others a little bit in 1 John about the three that agree, the blood, the... I don't know how it goes, but that bit. They're the only bits that are a little bit longer that we now think, oh, it turns out they weren't there in the original because they weren't there for the first three rows and then over there it pops up. And, you know, I think that... I really think that's okay because it's, it's so rare... It doesn't affect anything that's sort of centrally doctrinally. It's a, they're tiny changes. 
It's not a big problem. Uh, what about the end of Mark? Well, why did they end something? Why did they add something? Because Mark ends in such an odd way. So, Jesus resurrected. They say, go to Galilee, tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead of you. And they went out, fled, trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. <laughs> you get like, that is not a good ending, Mark. It's a very dissatisfactory ending. Now, just the fact that he ends weirdly is not an invitation to, you know, do better and improve on it and add something. But I think that's what people have done. They go, oh, no, we, we need to fill in something that's kind of what the other Gospels tell us about what happens next. Um, that's what's happened. But I would say Mark intended to, to end weirdly. And then you start to get to think, why would he do that? And I think it's because you read it and you go, I'm not satisfied with that ending. I can't, you know, if Jesus has died and risen again, I want everyone to know. And you're not telling anyone, come on, you should be telling people. And Mark's going, yes, exactly, you should be telling everyone. And that's the sort of, his brilliance as a writer is he makes us want it not to end here. That, of course, it doesn't end here because there's, even Mark says he's about to meet you in Galilee. <laughs> when he meets him in Galilee, that's when Peter's going to be restored and then there'll be the day of Pentecost. And, you know, so he, Mark knows the story continues, but he leaves it basically on a cliffhanger so that the reader is not satisfied. And you think, no, something as amazing as this must be told to everyone. It can't be kept secret. And Mark smiles and thinks, exactly. So I think it's a sort of rhetorical um, way of getting us to respond more than keeping quiet and saying nothing. Related, uh, who was Mark and did he get his material in Christ's life from Peter? Um, so there's not a lot of explicit stuff within the New Testament about him. It's not like in John's Gospel where he very coyly refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves and then at the end says, by the way, I'm the one who wrote this. Um, Mark um, might be in his Gospel. So some people think, I think quite plausibly, that one of the disciples following Jesus at, when he goes to his trial, and then they go seize him, is one of the disciples, and they grab this guy, and then he runs off naked because they grab his clothes. And he, people have thought that could be Mark. I think that's quite plausible. Um, John Mark referred to elsewhere in the New Testament. But we, he's, not one of the, he's not one of the 12 apostles. Um, tradition has it, Papias the first century, early second century writer tells us that Peter is a close friend of Mark's. So that's not data in, in the Bible, but it's very early um, Christian writings suggest that he got his stuff from Peter. It makes quite a lot of sense if you see how much emphasis Mark puts on the stuff involving Peter. Sometimes there's just three of the disciples, Peter, James and John, have an experience like the transfiguration or... Um, or like at the end of the trial. And Mark goes into a lot of detail about that, so that kind of makes sense to me. It makes it quite poignant as well, doesn't it, if Peter's denial is so emphasised <coughs> in Mark and Mark got it from Peter. I quite love that, actually, that Peter, as he's giving the details, he says, Mark, did you put in, did you put in the bit where I said I didn't know him? And Mark's like, yeah, but they're in. And then did you say, I did it three times? And Mark goes, yeah. He said, okay, good. Like Peter wants this to be recorded. Uh, which, if I'm speaking evangelistically, I often point this out, as in, if you were making up a gospel and you were Peter, 
I don't think you'd write yourself up like this. I mean, people are normally the, the heroes of the political biographies that they write. You don't put in a, you don't insist on the inclusion of the detail that shows that you're a coward who betrayed your best friend who turned out to be the king. So the very fact of its sort of brutal honesty about Peter just tells you Peter's interested in being very honest about what happened, and I think gives it real integrity. I mean, the, the biggest reason not to put yourself in the story of the calm storm is that you weren't there and it didn't happen to you. So as in, it, it, this is history, it's an event. Um, and I was not a witness of that event. And as if we just generalise it into a sort of psychological, you know, Jesus calms the storms of our life, we've said something different to what Mark is saying. Mark's saying there's an actual storm where people were actually about to die, and then Jesus calmed it. Because otherwise, where do you stop? Everything just becomes a metaphor, doesn't it? What, what resurrecting your daughter experiences have you had? Like, None. Some of us have had daughters that, not me, but some people have had daughters who've died and they've not come back yet. And others of us haven't got any daughters. But to sort of make it about me dehistoricizes it. It's no longer an event, it's just a principle. And w what I've done is I've turned a miracle into a parable. And miracles are not parables, miracles are events. That's, that's the problem. So you can't, don't do it like that. I remember years ago, um, being in a Bible study on Exodus, and the question was, what burning bush experiences have you had? And I just thought it was such a stupid question, and I immediately said, none. <laughs> and I bet none of anyone else has either. <laughs> I said defiantly, because I didn't want anyone to start answering it psychologically. I've never been walking past a bush that was on fire, but not burning, that God spoke from, ever. <laughs> like, because I think this is a, you know, what do you do? Do you Bible study on Genesis 1? What creating the universe experiences have you had? Like, no, I didn't create the universe. So the, to force it to be about me, you end up warping it. Having said that, I think in some ways the disciples are unique because they're the apostles, they're the, found, they're the foundation of the church. In other ways, they're typical because they're just followers of Jesus. And they're not perfect followers at all. They're followers who get it wrong and who are sinners and who need forgiveness and rest restoration and they argue with each other and you know they're so in a way on the one hand the disciples are very unique and certainly the events that happen to them are very unique on the other hand they're a little bit typical so i think we are to consider them as this is what it means to be a follower of jesus who gets it totally wrong and stuffs it up and jesus is very patient with them and so I think you just got to be a bit careful about it. So in what ways is this a typical lesson for a follower of Jesus? In what ways is this a unique event? And it will often be a bit of both. Um, you know, so sometimes the Bible will even apply it both ways. So uh, let me think of an example where you can be, well, say King, so David, King David is really not me. Like I'm not a king. I don't run a country. Um, I'm not the one that God has made a promise to that I'll, that my descendants will always reign forever. Like that obviously is not me, right? That's a bit like Jesus. 
um, when David defeats Goliath, there's like the entire camp of Israel are hiding behind the safe distance, and one person is fighting the the, the giant. Why do I assume that I'm the one person who's fighting the giant? I'm much more likely to be the whole crowd of people watching nervously, hoping that he'll win on my behalf. And so, you know, it, David is like Jesus, and I'm like this, the scared Israelite watching on. But elsewhere, David is very like us. So when he says in Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions, transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And Paul says this is every Christian's experience. David is a sinner who knows he's only um, justified by faith in God and his sins are not counted against him. That's, that's everyone. So it just requires a bit of care theologically. Someone can both be uniquely, or maybe even a picture of Jesus, and in other respects they can be a typical believer. we just got to be a bit careful before we jump to which it is. Okay. Um, <coughs> why did the spirits in the man beg Jesus not to send them away from this region um, before the pigs? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know the answer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can you point spank me on? Okay. Um, next question... Practically, how can we have an attitude of counting the cost for Christ, knowing that it, uh, if it would be worth it in the end, whilst at the same time trusting <coughs> Christ is always our hope for heaven? And I think it's a hundred decisions every day, isn't it? It's, a, it's not a, okay, I'm going to... It might. Maybe there's an initial decision if you decide to be a follower of Jesus or not. So if you're deciding to be a Christian or not to be a Christian then it's a decision. But it's also in lots of little things you decide. I think in Luke's Gospel it says, take up your cross daily um, and follow me, which makes the point even more explicitly. But I mean, even even in Mark, it's that every time you're in a situation, are you going to do the thing that is costly but honouring to Jesus or the thing that's easy but dishonours him? So I think you can't get away from those kind of decisions. Um, how you treat somebody when you're tired and they're needy, what you do when you're tempted to sin, how you spend the money that you get from your paycheck. I mean, it's just in every, in every single area of life. I suppose the question is, how conscious are we about it? And I'm suggesting that we need to keep in mind the return of Je- the resurrection of Jesus and his return all the time. Because in each of those decisions, the, to the extent to which I'm future-focused, I will be willing to live in a cross-shaped way. And as soon as I start living for now, I'll just start living in a more selfish, um, I want the whole world now kind of way. So I think it, yeah, try and make it your practice as a Christian to remember Jesus died and rose again and is coming back. And then bring that to bear on each decision you make it each day. Okay, thank you. Uh, A couple here relating to uh, the Jairus daughter story and versus... When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, did you say she was sleeping, i.e. she would be raised to life? Is this a principle for all, or a principle or promise for all kids who die before they are 12, or children who are part of the covenant community, uh, or they don't take anything from this? Uh, I'm going to relate it, but maybe ask them both at once. Um, 
would you be able to explain a bit more surrounding what the Bible says about infants and Christian parents who die and why you believe we could be sure they will be raised in glory? Uh, th thanks, that's a good question. And I know we probably have different views here in terms of the place of children within the covenant and the old and new covenant. So what's the first part of the question? It's about the, the promise for children who die and their resurrection. I mean, in some ways, Mark doesn't answer all those questions. So I don't want to force the text to answer questions that we've got that he's not talking about. So what Mark says is Jesus raise, resurrects a girl who's died. Um, and he calls it sleep, which they think is laughable. They, lo they scoff at him, ha, when he says she's asleep. Um, but then he wakes her up. And it's an amazing thing, because it says for Jesus to resurrect a dead person is as easy as for a mum and dad to go and wake someone up in the morning, which is wonderful. So it gives a hope of the resurrection in general. Um, why is Jairus' daughter specifically resurrected? I don't know. I mean, there's other people who aren't resurrected. Jesus doesn't heal every blind person in Israel, but he heals Bartimaeus. He doesn't resurrect every dead child in Israel, but he does resurrect Jairus' daughter. So it's a bit about the Capernaum little preview um, sort of principle that Jesus does some things to show what he will do and can do universally. Jesus can defeat death. So I think that's what Mark tells you. Your question is a slightly different one, which is what is the status of children who die and what hope is there for children who die? And um, I think the Bible is clear that um, certainly the children of believers who die will be safe on the last day. And the one text that's clearest about that is in 1 Samuel, uh, in 2 Samuel 11, when David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and her first child dies. And David um, weeps and mourns and prays while the child is ill. Oh, let me just read it to you because it's a pretty amazing passage actually. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, by Bathsheba, bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he wouldn't, and he wouldn't eat any food. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, because they said, Behold, when the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child's dead? He might do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants were whispering together, he realized that the child had died. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, Yeah, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. He asked for some food and he ate. And the servant said to him, what is it that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. What's the point of fasting? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And it's an amazing passage because you know, David, you know, a sick child is a terrible thing, and he's in prayer and he won't eat, and he's, 
But once the child's dead, he thinks, well, God's made his decision now. He's taken the child. So it's not, there's no, that's not going to change now. I've just got to be at peace with it. And then he has this great bit of hope. He's not going to come back to me, but I'm going to go to him. And what David is saying is, I'm as confident about my child's future as I am about mine. You know, the place where I'm going to go, I'm going to, the child is also going to go. And I take that to be a, a hope of the safety of a, of a child, of a believer. Now, um, in terms of the child of an unbeliever, when they die, I think people differ on it. And I would not be so confident myself, but there'll be different views probably in the room. Okay, uh, thanks for, for that. And that maybe the last question then. Uh, what have you learned from teaching, preaching from Mark's Gospel? Like Ian, this time obviously you shared how you were through it year after year and uh, you're so familiar with it. Have you learned anything new this time around? Uh, and then um, I'll ask a follow-up question, would you? Um, well, yeah, some new things. Like I, I mentioned the other day that I'd not realised that make his way straight in Isaiah was make his way euthus is the Greek word meaning immediately make his work make his way direct or unhindered or and that, I think that was quite cool actually the fact that everything happens immediately is like Jesus is un, unconstrained as he comes and comes into the wilderness bringing salvation nothing can stop him um that's cool that's a novelty um the other thing I'd say is the most important thing about a Bible truth is not that it's new, but that you hear it again. So most of the things that I've said this weekend, I already know. I know when I learned them sort of four years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Um, and I've known them for a while. That doesn't mean it's not very useful to me to hear them again. Because there's a difference between stuff you know in theory but is quite a long way out of your consciousness and stuff that you then rehearse and it goes back into the front of your mind. So doing these talks, going over these chapters has put all this stuff back in the front of my mind and that's a good place for it to be. Whereas if I kind of know it in theory but don't revisit it, it sort of drifts to the periphery of my mind. So I need to be thinking all the time, Jesus is able easily to save from a situation that for humans is completely impossible. And I take it, you know, if I'm in a storm and about to die at sea, or if a friend's daughter dies, or if I confront evil that is frightening, I need to know that. And having done a Bible study on it eight years ago is not as useful as having done it this week. So one of the things about the Bible is not, you don't revisit it only to learn the new thing. There might be new things, and there's often little nuances. You know, I think a bit differently about that now. But even if there's nothing new, it's still really good for you. And I suppose that's part of the thing about growing old as a Christian, isn't it? I can think of, there's a couple in our church who are in their 70s, although they're very sprightly and energetic. And they know the Bible really well, because for 70 years, you know, they've been disciples who've loved the word of God so they know it inside out and it's I guess it's pretty rare in a sermon they go oh I've never heard that before but it's still helpful for them because <laughs> they need to keep hearing it it's a bit and I find the metaphor of Jesus well it's in Deuteronomy and then Jesus picks it up about God's word being like bread man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God and then Jesus quotes it to the Satan um, it's quite useful that because I can't really remember any meals like, well, how many meals do I remember from 1997? Like, I can't remember any, I don't think. 
Um, but it would have been a problem if I hadn't eaten at all in 1997. I'd be dead now. So the thing about meals is that it does, it's not necessarily important whether it was new or novel or you can remember it, but it's just the fact that you keep eating because it sustains you alive. So that's don't only go for novelties. Just, it's worth keep reading this just to stay alive. Yeah. That's really helpful, thank you. Um, a person asked a follow-up, what slash how have you been encouraged by all who attended this year's Winter <laughs> <Epic> Castle? <laughs> You've been so encouraging. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... What do I say? I, don't, I know... I only know one of you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's good to meet brothers and sisters, isn't it? A couple of you I've met before at Cornhill, Belfast. Um, most of you I've never seen before, but you're brothers and sisters, and you love God's words, and we shared it together. That's cool. So thanks for being friendly. And it's, I think what's happening here is great, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm encouraged that I can speak for like an hour plus and everyone's listening, because that's, I'm not interesting enough to keep you going for an hour plus, but you are interested enough in the words of Jesus to keep you going for an hour plus, and that's exciting for me, because, you know, you'd have to, I wouldn't get away with that much teaching for lots of groups of people in their 20s, but it's, uh, and partly the reason I kept going so long is because I could see the people who were attentive, and I thought, well, I will say that extra thing then. But I think that's, that's exciting, that there's a hunger for serious engagement with the Bible, and I hope that that continues beyond this weekend. Yeah. Thank you so much. And a follow-up to that from this person said, thanks, Andrew. <laughs> and uh, I'm welcome. sure they're not the only person he or she to, to say that. And I think we all want to thank Andrew for his time with us and the work he's put in. Obviously, we're years working on Mark, but then especially like for this weekend. Uh, so... <coughs> Yes, so that's our, our Q and A officially finished. Uh, but just want to add a few thank yous to Andrew. You've you've uh, got us excited about Mark, and hopefully we will uh, read Mark and learn Mark, and uh, go away read it more. What we've been hearing, uh, and seek to uh, have a better view, a bigger view of Jesus, His glory, His kingdom, and uh, it's been great to have you here, uh, as well as thanking Andrew. There's a number of other people who make this weekend possible, and uh, so I want to thank them as well. Uh, Thank uh, those who brought uh, treats and buns. That was good uh, to keep us uh, fed in between meals. Uh, there's actually still quite a lot. You know, people have been very generous with uh, either their begging or their bringing. Uh, there's actually quite a few left still. So if you did bring some and they're still there, maybe you feel free. You know, do take them away. Otherwise, I don't know if there's any dogs around the castle that will chew, chew away at them. But do take them away. But again, thanks for bringing those. Uh, thanks for those who helped serve tea, coffee. Uh, thanks for those who were helping out uh, with books and things like that. Even sometimes just the practical things, helping move chairs, uh, carry boxes in, things like that. Uh, thanks to the musicians who helped us out as well. Uh, and then also there's Emma is here somewhere uh, who uh, does all the All sorts of administrative things, you know, keeping people right, making sure you've actually got a room to sleep in and which room and all of those things and taking your money. If you haven't paid, I assume you don't need to say this now, if you, if you haven't paid to, to forward on or to contact Emma. Uh, and then the last thank you is uh, for you all actually, just to say thank you for, for being here. 
and for spreading the word. Uh, there's some people here because someone else has, has spread the word. Uh, we don't have big advertising campaigns really, just a bit on social media. And then it's really word of mouth uh, saying, oh, I was at this event six months ago, you should come again, uh, it's coming up. And so uh, with that in mind, thanks to you. And then also uh, you could even get your, your calendar, your phone out now and put in the dates for the 2nd to the 4th of June, the first weekend of June. We've got John D. Rhodes here with us. Uh, he was here about four years ago. And uh, he's going to be back. He's a minister in Leeds in England. Um, the, one of the books that John uh, plugged last night, he's the author of. He's written two or three things. Uh, so he's going to be back with us uh, the 2nd to the 4th of June. So put the date in your diary and uh, spread the word as well. Because uh, even though we were full here last night, in the past we are able to actually spread the whole way through and fill that room as well. So uh, great. I'm going to give thanks for lunch. And then that's us sort of formally finished now after lunch at, at one. So let's pray. Uh, gracious God and Father, we uh, bow before you, uh, the God from whom every blessing flows. Uh, we give you thanks for the blessing of this weekend, uh, for this part of your beautiful creation with the mountains of the lake. Uh, and Lord, we give you thanks for uh, the opportunity we've had uh, to come together uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, from uh, all over Ireland, uh, from all around this province, uh, and, and for Andrew coming across from England as well. Lord, we give you thanks for the fellowship that we've had and enjoyed this weekend. We give you thanks that you're the God who feeds us and continues to feed us, not only new truths from your word, but those truths that we need to hear uh, day by day, and week by week uh, as your people because there are other messages out there the, the message of the world calling us to 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 just see what's in, in the now uh, and to want our life now and lord we do pray that you would even in light of this weekend fix our minds on the later uh, what's to come in the future and eternity with christ in christ's kingdom and so lord may our vision our focus our eyes be fixed upon jesus uh, his glory his kingdom uh, and Lord, we give you thanks also for the food that you've provided for us and all the, the care that's been given to us through the staff at the castle here this weekend. And so we thank you now for the food that we're about to receive. Uh, and we give you thanks for all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever to be praised. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of At the Castle. We hope that this teaching has helped you to better understand and apply the Word of God in your life. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family. We pray that the teachings of At the Castle will continue to help you grow in your knowledge of God's Word and personal discipleship. For more information about At the Castle, please visit our website www.atthecastle.org.uk Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.